Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett. Up next, my extended conversation with Rabbi Ariel Berger, gathering creative, mystical wisdom for the strange land that is our time. And his teacher, the late Elie Wiesel, makes offerings over our conversational shoulder. There is, as always, a shorter produced version of this wherever you found this podcast. Well, I'm happy we're doing this. Me too. It's so great to be with you. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you that I'm, (laughs) I just decided actually today as I was thinking about our conversation, you know, all these months, everything's been about 2020. And even in the last few weeks, it still feels like 2020. Yeah. I mean, because we're still in the pandemic. Um, but I'm now starting, now we're talking about the post-2020 world. I've made that decision. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Wonderful. Yeah, which is a better way, I feel, of looking forward rather than um, merely being mired, which we also are in some ways. Um, right. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, okay. Um, well, why don't we just, why don't we just leap in? And, okay. Um, yeah, why don't I would love? I've been reading about this a little bit. I would just love to start where I really like to start um, with hearing how you would begin to talk about the, the the religious and spiritual background of your earliest life of your childhood. Mm. Well, it's a very timely question because just this week I reached out to my first grade Rebbe, my first grade teacher. <laughs> who was a, a Hasid, mm-hmm. which means he comes from the Hasidic tradition and the same tradition that Elie Wiesel came from. And I grew up with memories of this teacher who seemed as if he had come from the old world 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. He dressed you know, in the traditional Hasidic fashion with a long coat. He had payas, the side curls that literally went down to his ankles, although he wore them Usually it's bound up behind his ear, but one time I saw him let his hair down. And I had this vivid image of that. And I always wondered about him. And I, I hadn't had any contact with him for many, many decades. And and finally, through a friend, I, I tracked him down just this week and had a conversation with him. And it was very beautiful, a kind of reunion with one of my first teachers who really introduced me to the study of Bible and, and the commentaries. And I remember, I remember very vividly the first letter that I ever saw as a six-year-old oh. in, in the Chumash. Not, not learning, I learned the alphabet before that, but the first time I sat down to learn oh. Chumash, the Bible in Hebrew, and I remember that letter like it was today. And a big part of my religious journey and spiritual journey have to do with those moments, those very early moments. And there were really two. That was one, seeing the first letter of the story of Abraham and God telling Abraham to go forth or to go to yourself, and the beginning of the journey of of Abraham and his family, the beginning of the journey of of my people, the Jewish people, and in many ways the beginning of a lot of ideas that have impacted humanity and continue to. And, And then there was a moment even earlier than that when we learned the alphabet. 
And this was an old world custom that they had in my school where they taught us, they taught us the Aleph Bays, the Hebrew alphabet, and then they gave us a sugar cube. <sighs> yeah. And I, and I can taste it. I can taste that sugar cube. And it's, <laughs> it's kept me going in many ways over time. But, but it wasn't a simple journey. My childhood was very complicated. My parents had very different ways of expressing their own spiritual aspirations and, and values. A lot of consonants and, and complementarity, but very, very different approaches. And my parents divorced when I was young. And so I was traveling back and forth between homes every day and then going to this very orthodox religious school. And so I was exposed to a lot of different things, primarily the, the love of learning and traditional learning and, and tech study and intellectual pursuits that my mother really instilled in me. She's the one who wanted me to go right. to that very religious school. It sounds like you you were you observed a traditional ortho, Orthodox Jewish life in her home um, and were and went to an ultra ultra Orthodox school, even though you were not ultra Orthodox to imbibe that. Is that right? Right. And but not mm-hmm. in my father's home. My father's home was very different. Right. Much more modern mm-hmm. and much more for lack of a better word artsy. My father's a composer and and that was a big part of my life also. Is that I was a very artsy kid. I was drawing and painting all the time and my my rabbis in school didn't really know what to do with that because that's not a very well-developed tradition. Uh, visual art is not a well-developed tradition in traditional Jewish circles. There are exceptions, but you know, Chagall was an outlier. And um, in general, there's a kind of allergic reaction to, to the visual arts sometimes in very traditional circles because, because of the biblical ban on trying to portray God or, or even the image of God, right. human beings. Right. So there's a real tension there. And as a child, I was really aware that there are two poles in my life and they're both wonderful and they're both really valuable and important. And I didn't know how they fit together. And one was tradition and one was creativity. One was learning and one was art. Hmm. Um, you know, when you speak about words and um, I, there's J- Jewish tradition so reverences um, language and the powers of language um, words as making worlds. And I mean, I'm so fascinated. Like, I could talk to you for an hour about this. Just, you know, how also, but also even the spaces between between letters and words is as, is as important also <laughs> as the letters yeah. that you learn. Yeah. Um, there's such richness. It's so layered, that experience of... Yeah, and maybe more important. Mm-hmm. Maybe the white space is more important. And mm-hmm. if you ever look at a traditional page of, of an old Jewish text, like... Uh, an old Hebrew Bible with commentaries or an old edition of, of the Talmud, which is the classic rabbinic work of, of the oral tradition. Uh, there's text in the middle, and then there are commentaries around the sides, and then there's space around the edges. Right. And I really believe that in, in some ways, of course, the oldest text is most authoritative and most important. It's closest to Sinai, is what we say. It's closest to Mount Sinai. It's closest to the origin but right. it's really the white space around the edges that ultimately is most important because that's where we we get to write our questions mm-hmm. and we get to expand and grow and evolve a tradition that without us would have long since become either either dormant and rigid or 
would have disappeared entirely. And I think that's not just true for for Jewish text. I think it's true in general. Creativity is is essential in having a dialogue with the old ideas and the old wisdoms and bringing them forward with our own voice and our own questions is that to me is the mm-hmm. the engine of Jewish creativity and, and human survival in many ways. Um, you know, I've heard this question rising up um, in kind of um, in this world um, in 2020 and in this world beyond 2020, which which has taken me a bit by surprise. Um, and, and, and I hear it being asked by people who are religious, but also by people who are not religious, asking this question, you know, what, what do people of faith, what do religious traditions and religious communities have to offer and teach us as we do this work that is clearly ahead of repairing, renewing um, our society, our life together? Um, and it's an, it's interesting that that question is rising up because I feel like for a lot of this young century, um, what we, what seemed to be more on the surface was the idea that religion, as it existed in the 20th century in American culture, uh, religious identities as they've kind of been inherited across time, um, that that's that that's shifting. Um, in this century. And, you know, when I read, when I pick up your book now, um, Witness, which is Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom, which you wrote from, it sounds like countless notebooks that you took of your time as his student and and, and teaching alongside him to some extent. Um, and and you, know, you and I want to say this also, you and I are speaking on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Um, it, this won't go out on the air on Holocaust Remembrance Day, but um, but that also feels very present to me as we as we invoke him. And when yeah. you tell these stories about him as a teacher and about what happened in those classrooms where there were these, I mean, something you've said about him is that um, the Holocaust was not his subject but it was the lens of experience through which he approached all other subjects. Yeah. And and the, the, the discussions that you describe in that classroom, uh, you know, about good and evil and how to be moral and how to engage difference and how to engage serious, complex questions and disagreement where, where, where good and evil are not at all clear or what to do with that. It all feels so resonant with, I think, the questions we know that are with us, um, not just in this country, in the United States, but, but in our world, um, in this young century. And I just, I, I wonder if for you also in this time, if that classroom has been present to you, that classroom that formed you, but also the, the questions that came out of that and the, the kind of conversation that was possible there. Yeah, this is where I live and what I think about all the time. And, and the classroom is with me all the time, mm-hmm. as it is for many other students of, of Elie Wiesel. Uh, and I think there are so many, not only pieces of content or teachings or stories that are very, very helpful and useful for us right now, but also tools and methods from religious traditions and wisdom traditions more broadly that we can repurpose or refine or bring back to life 
or recontextualize and, and use in ways that perhaps the, the authors of these ideas and tools would never have imagined. So you mentioned several mm-hmm. things that are so important. First of all, it is Holocaust Remembrance Day. And, you know, for Elie Wiesel, the power of memory was the most important ingredient in, in an educational approach that could lead to a more moral, a more human world. That was his goal as an educator. And I think it's the goal of many educators to, to help people access their own sensitivity, their sense of responsibility for others, to become more reflective, to become more open, perhaps. And memory, which, which is really the empathic encounter with stories that change you, is, is what makes education work powerfully to open people up to greater responsibility, sensitivity, a greater sense of, of their own humanness and the humanness of others. And the reason I say that is that education is very powerful, but we also know that education can be misused and abused and it can be irrelevant to moral development. And we know that this is a question yeah. that I, I lived with for a long time and and Professor Wiesel helped me really um, process this and, and come to terms with it in a certain way. We know that many of the Nazi leadership were highly educated people. They had PhDs. Many of the SS yeah, officers highly educated, had highly cultured people. Yeah, highly cultured. Yeah, and uh-huh. really, they were deeply immersed in great works of literature, Goethe and Kant, and they loved Beethoven, and they were kind to their pets, and right, had a real yeah. soft spot for animals. And, and then they, their day job was murdering men, women, and children. And uh-huh. and so we know that education isn't isn't a guarantee of of moral sensitivity, but. But we also know that there are people like Elie Wiesel and other, a lot of great educators who believe very deeply that education is the key to creating a better world and a more, a more moral and just world. And so he taught us that memory is the ingredient. And, and when you encounter stories and really allow them to change you, to change your mind and your heart and your nervous system, your behavior changes. And this is what I saw in his classroom. And what I've tried to do as a teacher in my own way. And and what I try to do as a person is really take in stories and pay attention to the stories that I'm carrying and encourage other people to ask, well, what stories are you carrying? Who's sitting on your shoulder reminding you not to look away from someone else's suffering or, Mm -hmm. or not to walk by the hungry person on the street. And I think it really, it really does happen that because we are, we are aware of those people whose stories we carry, those, those moral exemplars or, people who struggled with moral questions, or even those who failed, people who made the wrong moral choice, those stories are powerfully instructive. And, you know, I I collect those stories and Mm -hmm. they've changed my life. So that's one thing that I think it's not only true of religious traditions, it's true of all human wisdom and and even even being connected to our ancestors and our, our parents and grandparents' stories and the earliest family story or image that we can access. Um, that can make a real difference in our lives. And then there's a lot more from specifically from religious traditions that I think we we need right now, and not just in a religious context, not just right. in churches and synagogues and mosques, but in, in the street and in all of our interpersonal relationships, ideas that we don't necessarily take seriously. But if we did, I imagine a world that's very different. Yeah. You know, um, <clears throat> through the pandemic, I and all the all the loss and all the death um, that we've experienced as as societies and as a world, it, it was just so clear that we don't we don't know how to mourn um, collectively, right? And I I kept thinking of the word lamentation and the and the rituals mm-hmm. of lamentation, um, 
and I, I had a, I had a convers, I had a conversation uh, at some point in 2020 with a, um, with a group of rabbis, and um, they were they were talking about how that that ritual, um, in its roots, it had an impulse to be offered up to the whole community, not to to the to the to the to the world around, not not merely inside the walls of the synagogue, and um, and that just got my imagination so fired up about what. Because you know, if there's, I mean, I even think the word lamentation in in this period we've all been through lands with kind of a relief. Oh, like oh, that's something we could do. That's mm-hmm. something we could learn. That's something we could do together. Yeah, with with that word has great dignity, mm. and I think that's that's signaling that we need to honor our grief, and um, it's one of the many things I think we run away from. One of the things we're taught to run away from is grief. There are other things, too. I think we're taught to run away from great joy also. And, you know, I'm a follower of a a great Hasidic master named Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, who uh, who passed away in uh, 1810 and lived in the Ukraine. And and he really emphasized the softening of the heart, the biblical verse that Mm -hmm. says, give me a heart of flesh. And the goal of a lot of the practices in in that stream of Jewish mystical thought is to deeply open to experience, whether it's joy or pain. And ultimately, it's really about finding the places where where weeping and joy can come together or where yearning and delight can come together. Mm. I think one of the things that I've experienced is when I turn to face anything that I'm running away from, and particularly grief, there's there's an opening that happens and a softening that happens that also comes along with some sense of rightness that can be called joy in in a broad sense, in a big sense. It's not a feeling of happiness. It's not superficial happiness. It's not wanting to jump up and down dancing. It's grief. It's sitting in grief. But just the act of acceptance. Of letting what, it what's be there, true. Letting it be true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and not resisting and mm-hmm. welcoming and dignifying. I think that comes with a certain kind of mm-hmm. joy. Mm. So, um, yeah, I want to, um, well, I, you know, you, you mentioned th- 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 this language of memory, this notion of memory, so important to Elie Wiesel's teaching, so important to you. Um, and in the larger context of of the importance of the importance of learning and teaching, you know, it made me think of um, just reading you in this interaction that you have with him that is still very present in you. Is um, it, it made me think of the um, some of the work that Nicholas Christakis is doing at the Human Nature Lab at Yale and this sociologist and how he talks about the. Um, it's not the human sweet. It's the, but anyway, kind of this, this, the sweet, uh, the 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 ra- a range of um, experiences that we have that we don't always honor in culture, but that really define us. And and yes, it's, of course, it's something like our our capacity to care and to love, but it's also friendship, and it's also that we teach and learn, right? That we are teachers and learners. That, that this is this great kind of ordinary gift we can give to each other. Mm-hmm. At all times, and I really, I really see that alive, in, 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 and and I think that's also you as being part of the rabbinic tradition. Um, but in in this relationship with Elie Wiesel, um, 
So, so let's talk mm. about what, re, because you know that word memory, it's a word we all know and hear a lot, and it's very layered in terms of what you mean um, when you say that how, how learning can save us, how, how memory is in fact the, um, the thing that can join knowledge and ethics. So you're, you're, not, you're not talking necessarily formally about um, education and, or, and also not just the transmission of information. Right. Right. But what is it, what is it about this kind of memory that is transformative? Well, there's a, there's a great teaching from another great Jewish mystical master, a Hasidic master, who was speaking with his student, his disciple, and he said, he said, you know, the soul is always whispering to you. Every person's soul is always whispering to each person, whispering the wisdom that they need to take a next step. And the student replied, so then, master, if the soul is always whispering to us, why don't people learn? <laughs> it looks right, like people aren't right, learning. Right. And he said, because the soul never repeats itself. So there's a way in which every moment has its own new kind of teaching. And it's not just in the classroom. And it's not just formal education. It's, it's a certain kind of posture of, of being open to receiving whatever's happening and to look for insight in whatever's happening and to do that in the context of relationship. And I think that's a big essential element of memory where knowledge or information becomes something that we might call wisdom or at least something that can work on us and has the potential to change us and make us better, kinder, more courageous people. You know, that's what I think about it. I'm really obsessed with the question of the mechanics of moral transformation. Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we not just talk about the ideas of kindness and justice and so on that we that we wish right. for that we aspire to but to go beyond platitude and cliche and really get in there with you know what happens at an individual nervous system level what happens in a culture um, what happens right. in a group of people and how do we start to work with that and I think memory I think what Professor Wiesel meant by memory was the specific tools the specific encounters the specific celebration of questions that can lead to that kind of transformation. And it's not just, as you can tell, and as you know very well, it's not just an intellectual experience. And so, you know, part of the question is, what do we need to bring to educational moments and encounters beyond, beyond a student's brain or beyond a teacher's brain and beyond the, the knowledge that they've acquired? And how do we do that? How do we bring our hearts and our, and our hands and feet into the learning experience so that we can really encounter something that changes us and and do we want that are we mm. open to that and how do we become more open to that and part of it for me is just about the very simple thing of paying attention to what we're yearning for and i think one of the great powerful things about this period we're living through is that there's a lot of there's a lot of suffering and there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of isolation and and really a lot of darkness but there's also with that a lot of yearning things that we took for granted are, are no longer yeah. there for us. And, and we can't see each other's faces because we're all wearing masks. And a lot of people are losing their sense of smell, even if they get a mild case of COVID. And things that we took for granted are suddenly very precious. And we start to ask questions out of that yearning. What, what might the world look like? How do we not go back to the world that was? How do we reimagine? Mm. 
You know, a minute ago you were that lag was happening, and now it feels like it, Zach. It feels like it kind of suits. But I may, I may, yeah. I don't know. Let's keep going because I can still hear you. It's it's just it's frustrating. Technology okay. is frustrating. Yeah, I'm um, sorry about that. We ha- feel free yeah, to jump okay. in. You if don't need to do anything. If it's happening, oh, just jump now, in now and I, let me know. Yeah, it, it really picked up. Okay. I'm sorry. So I'll call in. I'll use my ear earphones and that mic, and that should be okay. And I'll sit in the same spot. Right. Okay. Okay, I'm back. Thank you, Zach. Okay. Um. Yeah. So let's let's keep going. I want to keep going with that question of how do we pin these beautiful, audacious aspirations um, to the ground of reality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. You know, something I found that you presented in 2019, which on on in some ways is not that long ago and in other ways feels like, you know, another world, um, but it was at the Jewish Futures Conference. I found this mm-hmm. te- teaching that you did um, on, uh, and so one of the things you say about, about Elie Wiesel is he, it's, it, it sounds like you all talked a lot about um, moral madness and boy, does yeah. that sound like an apt way to talk about, um, you know, this, 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 the world at this, at this part in, in this century right now. Um, and that the way to meet that is not necessarily a, a kind of straightforward sanity. Um, I kept right. thinking of, um, of Heschel and his idea of creative maladjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, right, <laughs> and I and I even just recently was thinking about that because I I came across. Um, do you know this sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. preached at Temple Israel Hollywood in the sixties? No, and he I talked. Don't think so. of, he he didn't he didn't quote Heschel, but he and Heschel were great friends, and they were supposed to they were supposed to spend um, what was it. I don't know some high holy day together just before just before King died and anyway in, in this he he called for he said maybe the world is in need of the formation of a new organization the International Association for the Advancement of Creative Maladjustment men and women <laughs> who will be as maladjusted as the yeah. prophet Amos who in the midst of the injustices of his day would cry out in words that echo across the centuries. Um, as maladjusted as Abraham Lincoln, who had the vision to see that this nation could not survive half slave and half free, on and on. Um, yeah. So, you actually identified five elements of holy madness, <laughs> um, and I'd love to walk through those. But but what I want to say to you, and I did say, you know, I did send this message to you before we spoke. Like I, I'm I'm curious about the texts and teachings that are with you now, as we walk through. You know, what we keep calling a moment with a capital M, which I think is really setting up the work for the rest of our lifetimes. Um, and so I'm interested in the texts and teachings that are with you. I'd like to start walking through these, but if you want to go in a completely different direction, that's okay, too. Um, maybe I should just ask you, like, what, you know, before we launch into this, um, um, are are there are is are there other texts or teachings or stories that feel so present to you that you want to just 
put out into this conversation right now? That's such a wonderful question and invitation. Uh, There are. um, Mm There are, and I'm, and I have to be honest. I don't remember what the five things were that no, I talked okay. about I'll, at the I'll Jewish Futures Conference. I'll walk you through them. I'll walk you through them. I've been I've been reformulating every okay. every time I do something else. Yeah. But that story that I talked about there is one of the. It's definitely one of the stories that we should come back to. The, the, the tale of the tainted, tainted grain. grain. Yeah. 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 It's such a formative story for me. It captures a lot of the elements of of this moment. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to talk about that. Yeah. Um, and that's but, Rab- you know, Rabbi Nachman. That's Rabbi Nachman, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I just I want to mention there's there's an, there are several other things that I'm walking with. There's one in particular that I'm really carrying, or that is carrying me, and and it's it's a it's not a story. It's a teaching of another master, and this is something that I was I was aware of, and I was even speaking about publicly, and and I couldn't remember where it was, and then I f- just recently came across. Elie Wiesel teaching this. Okay. Um, so I found the, the sources, which is really always exciting to kind of plug it in and find the, the root. But it has to do with the, the story of the Garden of Eden. And, you know, everyone knows the story and the, the tree, the apple, it wasn't really an apple. Right, the, it was a piece of, of fruit. And yeah. it, was, it was some kind of fruit. Maybe it was, maybe it was grapes, maybe yeah. it was wine, maybe it yeah. was wheat. Yeah, and that's why a lot of people have gluten issues nowadays. Um, but but it, it definitely <laughs> yeah. wasn't an apple, according to at least according to Jewish tradition. But but the the encounter with knowledge and the first sin. But of course, the whole story feels like a setup, and there's a lot to say about that mythical story in the Bible. But one of the things that commentators in, in the Jewish tradition zoom in on is the consequences afterwards for each of the characters. And so this teaching is about the curse of the serpent. Okay. And the serpent is cursed with three things for seducing seducing Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge. One is that the serpent's going to crawl on its belly. Next is that the serpent is going to eat of the dust of the earth. And the third is that there will be perpetual conflict between the serpent's descendants and humanity. So there was another great Hasidic master, the Rebbe of Kutsk, who was known for his passion for truth. Heschel wrote a book about him called A Passion for Truth. (laughs) Um, He was was a completely uncompromising, radical, um, revolutionary master who spent the last 13 years of his life in solitude because he he felt the world was just filled with <laughs> with distortion and falsehood and um there's a lot to say about him but he he asked the question about the curse of the serpent what kind of curse is it that god tells the serpent you're going to eat of the dust of the earth that doesn't really sound like a curse that really sounds like a blessing because that means the cur- the serpent is never going to experience hunger the serpent is never going to be hungry. There's dust of the earth everywhere. Mm. Anywhere you go, you're going to have food. So what's the curse? And he answers, that itself is the curse. To never be hungry is the worst curse of all. To never have yearning, to never lift your eyes mm. in expectation of, of, of a gift, to never have a gap between your need and the need's fulfillment, to never be vulnerable. That's the ultimate curse. And that's very much with me because I think 
it helps me to recognize that our yearning and our, our lack with all the pain that it brings. And I can only say this about my own yearning and my own lack, never mm-hmm. about someone else. Mm-hmm. But my own yearning, my own lack is a great blessing. It's what opens me up to have the desire to learn and the desire to grow and the desire to work on myself and all the ways I need to work on myself. And that's a reframing that that teaching really has given me these past months. Instead of pushing away the sense of yearning or absence or lack that, that I feel in myself and and often in my life recently. I, I really like you um, lifting up yearning as... I don't know, a virtue may be going too far, but a, a quality from which growth can come. And there's some place where you you were bemoaning um, the kind of way we we rush to solutions or pseudo-solutions. That's, that's what we want to do. It, it's kind of revealed as so frantic in a time like this. Um, and that sometimes, in fact, often in life as it is lived, um, it's best to 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 take time to be discerning. And I, I feel like I feel like honoring yearning um, also is a way to kind of point at that space of dwelling, um, and also from which possibility that we can't fathom um, if we rush. Uh, might emerge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really feel that looking at the world, the world looks the way it looks and a lot of the the challenges and dynamics of injustice and, and um, you know, looming environmental, it's not even looming, we're in it, environmental crisis. These are problems that were created by people creating solutions and often creating solutions <laughs> right, right. for the wrong reasons or the interests of the wrong of the wrong values, so to speak. And, and, and I think this is exactly where you were going before with, with Dr. King and, and creative maladjustment and Heschel and creative maladjustment is exactly what we need. We need that space for radical ideas, questioning, avoiding the premature resolution of, of tensions between values and allowing ourselves to yearn, I think is the first step in that. And we often, I think one of the biggest challenges we have right now is we are trained from an early age, and I think it's gotten worse for new generations to numb out in all yeah. kinds of different ways and to avoid our yearning and to avoid the kind of the kind of pain that can open us to something new. Yeah. And there often is joy in, in that opening. As I said earlier, I really experienced that and I, I hear that from others as well. We spend a lot of time numbing out and we numb out to our own pain and we numb out to, to other people's others. pain. Yeah. And, and it's sort of a culture of desensitization that I think we have to, we're, we're in many ways, many people are pushing against, but I think that's one of the great tasks ahead of us is to, is to renounce that culture of desensitization and say, we're going to be sensitive yeah. and we're, maybe we're going to be oversensitive for a while <laughs> to, you know, to balance this out. And we're going to allow ourselves to yearn and to express our yearning to one another. We're going to celebrate one another's yearnings and hold that up. I think it is a virtue. Mm-hmm. So I mean the first these elements of holy madness that you that you taught um um you know the first one is 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 truth telling but 
you, you're not what you're saying there, and 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 in the in the biblical context and the theological context, you're not you're not you know. I think in this culture we've equated truth telling with fact telling, and then it becomes a battle between our competing facts. But you're talking about truth telling, which is something which is a different move. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you know, you 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 tell you tell us you told a story to illustrate that. Um, about a woman walking in the marketplace, right? Do you know this, what I'm talking about? When her, her teacher called to her and said, have you looked at the sky today? Yeah. She looks up for the first time and remembers that she's made for something more than trading in the marketplace. That's a different way to yeah. talk about the truth, the gravity, and the expansiveness of the truth we're called to. And I think we mm. mean, we often debate in our society as truth-telling yeah, I think in that in that story and and in many traditions, truth is really the search for truth. Mm. It's not primarily about facts and data. We we need facts and data, and you know that's been um, an, an endangered species in many ways for a while too. But there's a certain way of opening up to a larger perspective and saying, I I need to reflect and I need to challenge my assumptions. I need to become aware of my assumptions. Yeah. Um, and and this is a big part of my own experience as a student. You know, the the best things I've ever learned were not content; they were some sort of contrast with someone else's way of thinking that at first seemed really strange to me. Um, that I allowed in, that I allowed to question me, and I and I through that process became aware of my own assumptions and the lens through which I was looking. And I think a lot about that metaphor of the lens. Um, that story is about looking down or looking up at the sky and paying attention to material things or paying attention to a, a bigger perspective right? Um, and being reminded of that. And by the way, that's a specific practice also in, in certain Hasidic traditions is literally to look at the sky every really? morning. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's an idea that you receive consciousness from looking at the sky. So um, I think on a very simple level, on a psychological level, it reminds you that the world is big. Yeah. And that gives an important perspective. If I'm worrying about something small or preoccupied with something small, you know, it allows me to go deeper and to reach higher just on a very simple level. Um, there are also mystical levels to that idea, but I like yeah. the psychological level. There are mystical um, levels also, I think. I'm, you know, you said a minute ago that you're so interested in how, how can we get really granular and, and use all the knowledge we have even about how our bodies work to, to, to pin these aspirations to action. Like, I yeah. feel like some of the things we're learning scientifically or, or maybe that, are, that those of us who aren't scientists are being invited in a, in a new way to take in is, you know, how even so we say one of the things that feels most reliable is you look up and the sky is blue, right? But that the sky is not <laughs> blue, that, that, that our eyes tell us that, 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 that's, that's, that our eyes make color of light. Um, so even that right. kind of looking up at the sky means something different to me now than it did. And, and, it, and, it's a, and it's a good reality check. It's like, oh, there's more possibility and more reality here than my senses automatically tell me. Right. Right, and that relates to what you were saying about not jumping to solutions. Mm-hmm. We go very quickly to solutions, and it's, it's, a, it's sort of a, a temptation of superficiality. You know, yeah. something that looks like it works and taking things at face value. There's a place for simplicity, too. 
But there's often a, a speed, we're moving with such speed, instead of taking time to really question, how, how am I seeing this? And how am I perceiving? And how am I hearing? And what am I missing? And who's missing around the table? And yeah. what tools are, are we missing in our work? And what are we taking for granted? Those are the questions to me that lead to, that get at the mechanics of moral transformation. It's just a starting point. And really the purpose is not to answer those questions. It's to, it's to really live with those questions for life and to continue to ask over and over again and never to really settle into a complacency. And that's, I think that's an emotionally difficult thing to do because mm -hmm. we all want to find a place to land and we want an ideology to adopt and we want to be a, adopted by a community. Yeah, and our bodies and brains I, also want that for us, right? So they urge us, right. <laughs> they compel us in that direction. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. To belong and, the, mm -hmm. and thank God we get to have belonging. We get to make connections mm -hmm. and put down roots. But we also get to reach to the sky at the same time. We get to ask questions and create spaces and circles in which we can ask those deeper questions. Um, I am curious when you say there are other mystical ways to, to, to kind of take that analogy farther. Just do that a little bit. The looking well, up so, at the sky. Yeah. Well, this goes to fundamental things about God and creation. You know, there's a many of the mystics, at least in at least in Jewish tradition, because Judaism begins with monotheism, many of the mystics are dealing with the fundamental question of what's the relationship between one God and the multiplicity of things, events, colors, tones, people, personalities that we find in the world? You know, how do those things fit together? Why is there difference if everything is part of one God? And that's really kind of the driving question for many mystical texts. And, and so different traditions and schools of thought have developed different bridges between one, the one and the many. And they all have to do with how the, they use different metaphors. Many of them have to do with light, right. which you were just talking about. So the white light is sort of the undifferentiated light that's coming down from the oneness. And then it splits into different colors as it, descends into the physical world, our perceptual world, our, our universe that we experience, and the universe in which there's free choice. And people are not just robots and robotic extensions of, of God's will, but people are choosers and doers and actors. And, and so that's where you have difference. But the sky, the sky is blue for a reason, according to the mystics. It has to do with which, which vibration is being expressed and every every step along that descent from oneness to multiplicity has a different um, a different color and a different tone, mm. a different note. And you know, and these are metaphors to try to get at why why are we here and what's our relationship with oneness? And to me, the most important thing about that, it gets very, very complex. but to me the that's not the interesting part. The interesting part is, if we assert that there is a oneness underlying all difference, what does that do to our politics? And what does that do to things like conflict and dialogue? And how do we find a way of creating a world in which there's a, there's a sense of unity and a, and a sense of connection and it's being practiced with deep respect, deep listening. When I encounter someone who disagrees with me, I'm not just shutting them down or running away. I'm making room for it because there's 
there's something of God in that position. There's something for me to learn in that position. Um, but yeah. I, without collapsing all of that into uniformity or conformity, that's where this, that's where this um, mystical stuff gets really important to me. Yeah, and that, that word unity is out there in our political life right now and it's it's controversial and i think it's i think i think it's hard for people to i mean aside from the fact that we don't feel very unified right now and there's also this sense of distaste at who one would have to be unified with i think across <laughs> our across our cultural trenches um yeah but i think what you're getting at is actually the deep existential um fact that unity is not quite a big enough word and that less a lot of the things that we're actually learning, a lot of things we started, some of us started to learn more um, acutely in 2020, are about the dignity of otherness, and that's such an important theme in your writing and in in what you what you learned alongside Elie Wiesel. Um, would you talk a little bit about that? About and let me say, so I, I also love this. Um, if this feels connected to me, although I know we could like talk for an hour about each of them but you said that that one of the virtues one of the ways to be maladjusted positively is to push against false dichotomies which are so 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 which are everywhere in this culture and and claim the countercultural both and paradoxical thinking and that you said perhaps Elie Wiesel's favorite phrase was and yet, and yet, right? Like I said, yeah. it's not. It's not even. It's not. Um, it's not. Yes. It's not. Yes. And it's. And yet. Um, <laughs> and and this idea that I mean, even st- going back to Genesis, um, that even the idea of the help meet, the word that gets translated as help meet, like even the first couple of Adam and Eve. That there's that there's an otherness actually in in the actual language and imagery, um, in that story. You said this: the first couple are the first friends, the first strangers, and the first to encounter an other. Yeah. The first human relationship. Mm-hmm. And that phrase in the original Hebrew is so paradoxical. It's really not help meet. I don't even know what a help meet really means. But I know. I think that's the King James it, version. It's like that Eve is to, just is in you know created to become Adam's help meet. Is what is the is the language a lot of people learned in church at least? Right. Yeah. Right. I, I've seen it too uh, from mm-hmm. a young age, but I don't know what a meet is. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, but the original Hebrew is is really it's really fascinating because it's two words. It's not one word. And it's two words. There are two words that mean really the opposite. One is helper, and one is against him. And that's the that's the real key to understanding this this idea of otherness. That that really one of the best things that you can do for me, one of the best ways you can help me in my search for for truth, which is a never ending search, and my desire to improve myself and become a better person is to confront me with your different perspective, your different opinion, your different take on things. And, and, and the way that Professor Wiesel asked the question is, what does it mean to disagree for the sake of the other? Right. Disagree and what would it look like for us to harness the, the... What is it? 
for to disagree. I just want to underline to disagree for the sake of the other. For the sake of the other, yeah. yeah. Um, and what would it look like to harness the power of difference? Not just to say difference is okay, and not just to talk about how we like differences in our society, but to really recognize that it's the greatest, if we're interested in truth, if we're interested in growth, again, truth not in an absolute sense, because we can't ever achieve that, but as an unfolding, blossoming search or journey, um, we, if we want to grow, then how are we going to grow without otherness? How are we going to grow without people who are really different, who see things differently, who can challenge us? Not only to deepen our thinking and have a, a creative, fruitful back and forth, but but again, that's where I become aware of my biases and my assumptions and my blind spots. You know, that only happens, that only happens in dialogue. And I think the thing is that we have forgotten how to do that work. And we need a lot of, a lot of healing work around constructive conflict and remembering that conflict and difference is it's not only something to be tolerated and someone else is not to be tolerated. We, we tolerate a cold. Right. And we shouldn't be tolerating each other. We should be deeply respecting each other. We should be celebrating each other. And, and if we took seriously the idea that every human being is created in the image of the divine, whatever that means, in the image of oneness or in the image of creative energy or power or the image of God, whatever word we use, we would see each other with tremendous awe and reverence. We would write letters home to our family saying, you're not going to believe what happened today. I <laughs> met a human being. I met a human being. It's an unbelievable thing. And, and if, that were, if that were something we were choosing to cultivate, our behavior would look very different, you know, at micro levels and macro levels. And we wouldn't be so threatened by, by differences. And we, we could probably harness the power of constructive debate and conflict to figure some things out that we need to figure out together. Yes. I mean, there's some simple, there's, you quote Elie Wiesel saying, to disagree, to engage with controversy does not mean to refuse to listen, which sounds like such a simple sentence, but it's, it's almost impossible in a lot of our, the places where we engage otherness, um, at least in public right now. Yeah. I, I want to share that I think there are two challenges with otherness, really. One is one is we, we sometimes fall into the trap of not listening or feeling threatened or closing ourselves to the other. But we also make a different mistake, which is to be overly familiar with the other and to think that we already know the other. Right. And one of the things I've been thinking about is the the way in which you know, light from light from a distant star arrives at our planet, arrives at the human eye after such a vast period of time. Light takes time to travel. And so at a very, very micro nano scale, the same thing is true when I'm standing two feet away from someone and looking at them. There's some lag, there's some time lapse between the light from their face reaching my eyes and, and when it originated in their face, the, in, which means there's, there's a way in which I'm never seeing you. I'm seeing you a moment ago, even though we can't measure that. And that means that I'm always, I'm always a little bit behind. And my ideas about you are always a little bit obsolete because in that 
micro nano nano nanosecond, you might have changed hmm. and you might have grown in some way. And, and to me, that's pointing us to a, a great sense of openness to one another. If we could really hold that place of not knowing, that's the other the other part of otherness is to really allow ourselves to not know each other and to not say, okay, I've heard this political position a billion times before, or, you know, my, my neighbor or my uncle or the person I've had an argument with for, you know, Thanksgiving dinners for the last 10 years, yeah. it's going to be the same this year, but to allow a little bit of space at least for not knowing and the possibility of being surprised. It's this also where I feel like, um, the shift from the the shift in so I don't know I kind of think the like the really well flexed muscles we have are about arguing and convincing, um, and I feel like the sh- the the model what you model in your relationship with your teacher Elie Wiesel, um, and also just with your life and your passion as a teacher yourself is is this moving into this place of of teaching and learning from each other. And that's where I come back to kind of, you know, Nicholas Christakis, this scientist, this sociologist, is working with how kind of teaching and learning are these amazing things human beings are able to do and do with and for each other. And one of the one of the kind of um the elements of you know good good maladjustment <laughs> that you mentioned in your teaching is tenderness. Um, I think you said, an open heart in spite of everything. Uh, it's a very countercultural move, and yet it's a move that we actually know are very familiar with in life as it is lived, right? Krista, I just need you to speak up a little bit. It's a little hard to hear you. Okay, sorry. I heard almost. I heard almost okay. all of that. Just so the last an, phrase. So an open, an open heart in spite of everything. Um, yeah, just talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I, there, I've had an image in my mind for the last period of time that the world is a baby in our hands and the baby's running a fever. <laughs> and if I were holding a baby, my baby in my arms and the baby were running a fever, I would feel two things that don't always come together that I think we need to bring together. One is such a sense of tenderness and love and open-heartedness and also such such a sense of ferocity and willingness to fight and do whatever I need to do to get this baby well, you know, and, and those are opposed energies, you know, and opposed feelings. But I think we need a kind of moral ferocity and a lot of passion. And, And we see that, we see that, we see that across a lot of political difference right now. We see a lot of passion that descends into fanaticism and extremism. But it's driven, if, if there's a spark of holiness there initially, it's a sense of passion and caring deeply about the future of, of yeah. this nation and, and the world. It could be misguided, it could be great, it, it doesn't matter, there's passion there. That's, that's something that's a human capacity that often doesn't come together with tenderness and openness and open-heartedness. Yeah. And the image of the image of the baby for me is the place where they come together. If we really have that sense of compassion, of love, and of total and utter commitment, um, we can find a way of reconciling those two energies. And and the, the place where where I experience this in a traditional text is this great moment 
I think I write about it in the book where where a young David has come to the king Saul and just as he arrives Goliath attacks and and is hurling curses at the at the Israelites and and the king is sort of flustered and stymied and he says who who's going to step forward to fight this giant and young David steps forward and the next thing that happens is that Saul takes off his own armor and places it on onto David onto this kid this mm-hmm. teenager and then David takes off the armor and he goes to fight Goliath and it's one of my favorite images from the Bible taking off the armor as you're about to go into the most dangerous situation you've ever faced and the way that struck me is I think it's a, a deep teaching about vulnerability that vulnerability really is a great weapon but you have to have the courage to choose it you have to have the courage to be vulnerable and you know it's so difficult and I think it's so difficult in our society which really privileges in many ways success and having a really great facade of of well-being and having strength. everything together yeah and strength yeah and and knowing the answers and the, we're taught to know the answers in school right yeah. we're taught yeah. that that's how we're evaluated in many ways and i think of that mary oliver poem one of my favorite poems uh the man who has many answers you know and and the great line the man who has only questions to comfort himself makes music and I, I identify with that so deeply. And I think, I think that's one of the things that, that Elie Wiesel brought to his classroom and to his work in general. He once said, fanatics only have answers and no questions. And I only have questions and no answers. And I think I, I would love to see us become more comfortable with and more dedicated to not knowing, keeping our hearts open, taking off the armor recognizing the armor that doesn't fit and saying, I'm, I'm here and we're here together. We're not going to be perfect. We're not perfect. I'm going to share my, my flaws with you. I'm going to share my questions with you. We can do that together. It's okay. It's more than okay. It can also open us up to great, to great strength. And that's the, the, the strength of tenderness. You know, what Elie Wiesel, though, also was so wise about is the pragmatism of the open heart, right? I mean, I think he said to you that I teach with an open heart, not for moral reasons, but for pragmatic ones. Because, yeah. right? It's, it's, um, yeah. Because it opens the students' hearts. It models it, that. Right. Right. And that's something we, Yeah. It, it's almost, it's, it's not, a very strong logical idea, but it's an experience we've all had. I think, I hope, I hope we've all had that experience of the teacher or the leader um, who was, for whom we we were able to open our hearts because they had opened theirs. I hope so. The one thing I know right now is Many, many people have a tremendous yearning for that kind of leadership. I think that's a lot of the responses to the inauguration had to do with many things, relief and other feelings, but but also really looking for a leader who is talking about his whole soul being in what he's doing, using that language. 
aside from policy agreements or disagreements, I think people were very, very ready to be moved by that. And it's not necessarily because the moment was so powerfully moving. There were other moments that were powerfully moving. I think it's because people are really waiting for that. And that's that's something that gives me a lot of hope right now. We we could see that. We could see people coming together and insisting that being human and being open to our vulnerabilities and sharing our yearnings together is an essential part of our political discourse while we're also working on policy Mm -hmm. and while we're also protesting in the streets when we need to. And while we're also working on accountability and justice, I think those things, again, it comes back to, and yet I think we, we, we often choose one side of that equation and we need both. We need to work on justice. We need to work on policy. This is one of the things about professor Wiesel, by the way, that I still don't totally understand how he did this because he inhabited such a a space of contemplation and, you know, living in, in a kind of metaphysical reality, the way he thought, he thought in terms of Hasidic mystical teachings and stories. I would watch him. One of my, one of the, the, the hobbies I had when I was his student was I would watch him in the white house. I haven't written about this, but I, I would watch him in the white house or at the UN speaking publicly. And I would try to, annotated in my mind, you know, where, where is he drawing on (laughs) a text or a story that I know he loves, Yeah, you know, that I know he's, I know he's, he's very close to her that's influenced him. And it was very easy to do because he was very clearly drawing on things like that in his work on behalf of genocide prevention or holding, holding leaders accountable for, for oppression and genocide in places like Darfur. Um, he was able to do both. He was very canny. He was very wise in navigating very difficult political situations where, for example, he was trying to convince the the United States State Department to call what was happening in Darfur a genocide. And that was a very difficult battle for him. And, and he would come to class really frustrated because both the United Nations and the United States were refusing, until a certain point, they were refusing to call it a genocide. And he was very upset about that. And then he succeeded. And Colin Powell and then others started officially calling it a genocide. And that had some practical ramifications. So he was inhabiting that world. And then he was inhabiting the world of, you know, Kafka and Camus and, and the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, the Hasidic masters. And how do all, how do those things fit together? Well, we need both of those things. That's a, that's a massive and yet to be very practical and to not let go of the aspirational metaphysical ideas and postures and gestures that that can help us to change the practical. It was really striking to me when you write about um, that classroom in which you were formed uh, with him, the big conversations and, and heated debates that took place about good and evil. And he was so... He he just didn't that that end yet. I think made it impossible for him to fully write off human beings, despite what he'd been through. Which didn't mean that he didn't see the need sometimes for obviously for accountability um, and and for justice. But um, there was this one moment you recount where this this debate had flared, and you know if you if you if you resist the idea that people are only evil is that does that justify evil does it explain it away and he brought it down to this 
I find this so stunning and so helpful, this almost a litmus test for how do you know you're not doing that? And he said, like, how, how, what, how, you know, what, what's kind of a, a, a basic um, thing to hold yourself to? And he said, the key in all of this is never allow anyone to be humiliated in your presence. Whatever has happened in the past, we must deal with those who are here now. Even to walk around with that ethic, never to allow anyone to be humiliated in your presence, um, that gives me so much to think about and to work with. It's problematic for Twitter. (laughs) It's very problematic for Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that that says more about Twitter than the concept. It might just be. It might just be the wrong. Yeah the wrong way of, of communicating as human beings right now. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but you're getting at something really challenging because Elie Wiesel wouldn't speak to Holocaust deniers, for example. We're speaking on Holocaust International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and, and he was invited to debate Holocaust deniers, and he refused because he didn't want to dignify that position right. with a debate, right? So there was a line, and there were limits, but... He saw, I think he saw a world in which people who should be talking to one another are not and could be. And and at the same time, a world in which terrible humiliations are happening right now. You yeah. know, and, and he didn't, he literally didn't sleep well at night because he was so deeply aware of the suffering of, of people in the world at that moment. And it was one of the things that he gave his students was a, a kind of insomnia. And I, I always tell people I, I don't want to, I, don't, I never wish insomnia on anyone. I want people to have a really good, healthy sleep. But at least when we're awake, we should be insomniacs. And when we're awake, we should be awake. And we should know that right now people are suffering and there's something we need to do about it, even if it's something small. Mm-hmm. So never let someone be, let, never let anyone be humiliated in your presence is a very powerful starting point because because it means that you cannot, not only can you not humiliate someone, but you can't be indifferent. You can't be a bystander. You can't allow things to happen. You are implicated in what happens. And that's that's really fundamentally the shift, I think, between being a spectator and being a witness. Right. And, and you know, that's such a key concept in his work. And and now in our work, also many of us, you know, the... Yes, in your work. The, the, yeah. The, yeah. And the question of being implicated... When you see something, are you implicated or can you go back to sleep? Can you go back to whatever you were doing before? When you learn about someone suffering in a a genocide right now on the other side of the world, or there's someone in your neighborhood who's hungry, or you're in an affluent neighborhood, what's happening in the, the next, you know, three towns over in every direction. Yeah. To feel responsible even before even before the next step of doing anything the first step is to feel to feel implicated and to take it personally and you know that's that's the what emerges from that statement don't let anyone be humiliated in your presence and and that's a tremendous kind of throwing down a gauntlet for all anyone who listens to say as yeah. the rabbi said 2000 years ago i have to I have to say the world was created for me. The world was created for me, not in the sense that I can now take what I want, but that I have responsibility to give to the world. Mm. And no one can live with that all the time because we'll, we'll just go mad. Right. This is one of the things that a lot of great 
great spiritual leaders struggled with depression because they were introjecting people's suffering all the time. But it's the kind of thing that we can practice. We can turn it into practices of sensitizing ourselves and feeling more and more implicated and building our muscle to have that feeling of responsibility without any despair creeping in. And the more hope we have and the more capacity we have to choose hope, the more we can take responsibility for the world around us. And that's why, to me, hope is the first moral choice. It's the thing that allows us to stay in the game and, and continue to do this work, which is a lifetime's work and more than one lifetime. But if we give up, it's over. We're just, we're just choosing to allow people to be humiliated all the time in our immediate presence and right. by extension in our presence. Yeah, I've been, um, I heard you talking about bearing witness um, in the course of 2020 in, in, in something I watched. And I've, I've been thinking about that phrase ever since um, that it, it, it's, it's a wonderful piece of religious language, right? That is just um, distinctive. It's additive to other ways um, that we speak and think. And mobilize ourselves um, yeah. in a purely secular sense. I've also thought yeah, about... And yeah, go on. No, go on. No, I was just, just going to say it's such an interesting word. It, it, I, we decided to name my book Witness. Uh, I can't remember if it was the publisher or, you know, a conversation we had together. And... Only much later, after the book came out, did I realize, and this is obvious, it felt silly, but I realized that witness is also a verb. It's also a call to action. Yeah. So that was one one thing that I, I belatedly realized. And the other is that wit, the word witness appears in different contexts in very different ways. And obviously in a legal context, but also in in meditation, we talk about witnessing your own thinking. Yeah. You know, that, that hair's breadth of distance where you can reflect on your own thought process and begin to, to work with it consciously. You know, that's, that's a shift to being a, being a witness of your own mind. There are other contexts as well, the, the religious context you're talking about. And I think it's a very fruitful, rich word that I continue to find nooks and crannies hiding in it. Yeah, I, I think it's the kind of language that, um, that we can kind of mull over and carry around and that it, it shifts something. Um, it's challenging in yeah. a good way, if nothing else, right? It kind of shifts you out of the a default mindset, that numbing that you talked about. I mean, yeah, the I word lamentation is like that too. I lamentation, think, right? yeah, like yeah, yeah. And it, so it, it challenges you in some way to reframe something. So is the language of redemption, right? That's it's religious language. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've thought, I've been thinking. So you know, and if I think about. The post twenty twenty world, which is a phrase I'm getting used to saying, um, it feels to me like you know our political dynamics sent everybody back into their trenches at some point. But um, there were reckonings, there were things that became visible, like unseeable, um, for a great number of us across all these divides um, about. You know, to me, the question of what is essential and non-essential that we had to ask as a civic question 
is also a deep existential mm. question, right? It's almost, and and um, and then and the realization that has accompanied that, um, as the pandemic played out, but also as the economic consequences of the pandemic played out, that we haven't oriented our society we, to value what is essential, right? To care for what is essential, um, right? And then, of course, the the racial reckoning that that had an origin here in. Minneapolis, where I'm sitting, speaking to you. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this, that you know, it's not that that was something that hadn't happened before, and it's happened since. But I think there was this seeing, um, maybe out of that tenderness that we'd all been forced to kind of, you know, brought to our knees in a way. Um, yeah. So, you know, I also, and I, I think there's this language of like the silent majority, which was used in Germany and it was used in the 60s and it's been used in American politics now. But I've always felt like there's a potential, like there's another side to that. I, 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 I feel in the world that I see um, the beautiful, quiet, uh, caring, redemptive, generative lives that are never like never the noisiest and never getting all the attention, never being covered. Like there's also this silent majority of, I believe, of goodness, of generativity. Mm-hmm. And and I, mm-hmm. I and I and I and um and I, I think this language of of witness, of moving from being a spectator to 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 being a witness to a, a kind of more visible, courageous orientation um i feel like there's i feel like that's a useful way to think about how those of us who are and i think there's so so many across again all these divisions who really just want to be be living differently and figure it just as you say like figure out what it will ask of us and what it takes and what we can do um this is a wonderful this is wonderful language to think about mobilizing that yeah, I, I think about that a lot. When memory is transmitted, it makes witnesses. Witnesses are activated people who now are telling other people's stories. And what is a community if not a group of people who tell one another's stories? So if we have the capacity to encourage, inspire, empower people to do that more, and not necessarily in, in a large, shiny way, it could be very humble. It could be small and modest. Very often it, it needs to happen more within a family or within yeah. a small community. Yeah. It's an orientation. You know, yeah. if we can support that orientation and cultivate it. What I love about this is it's not it's not a specific ideology. It's not didactic. It's it's really moral education without moralizing. Yeah. You know, it's just helping people to open and and um cultivate openness and thoughtfulness, rigorous thought, accountability, working for justice, listening, vulnerability, listening for those soul whispers. You know, th- these are these are some of the ingredients that I see here. But there's also, there's one practical thing I, I want to share. We had an experience just a couple of weeks ago after the, um, after the storming of the Capitol, we had a, a meeting of something called the Witness Cafe, which emerged from our advisory group that was sort of testing the approach of applying some of these ideas to moral education of, of leaders, of young leaders. Yeah. 
And we created this opportunity for people to just sort of hang out together because they were wanting more time, unscripted time together. So we, we now meet every other week and we all got together and um, we've been doing this for about four months now. And for the first time, there was a real sense of tension in, in reaction to what was happening, what had happened in the Capitol on January 6th. And it became really apparent that we've got real political diversity in this group. We've got progressives and conservatives and, you know, they've created some friendships and connections, but there's tension here. Mm-hmm. And we had this very powerful moment. It's an hour long cafe. The only requirement is you have to have a drink, coffee or tea or something. And, and you know, it's very open space. So I wasn't anticipating this and none of us were, but it came up. People were talking back and forth. It was getting heated. It was still very respectful, but heated. And we had five minutes left. And so now I was thinking, you know, what can we do in five minutes? So, and everyone sort of turned to me as the host, you know, to kind of close this out and nothing was resolved. So I thought, what would Professor Wiesel do? <laughs> right. So I, I don't know what he would do for sure, but I, this is what came to me. I said, first of all, I'm really happy that we have, that we're surfacing these differences because one of my concerns with, with building anything is that we're going to create another echo chamber. Yeah. And that's not the goal here. Yeah. Um, we could talk about this for another four hours, but we have, we have four minutes now. So, so let's sing. And (laughs) we sang, we sang a Hasidic melody, a wordless melody, a beautiful melody for the last four minutes. And I think this is one of the directions that I want to explore more. You know, there was a, Rabbi Nachman said that when two people speak at the same time, it's dissonant, it's cacophony, but when two people sing together, it can be harmony. (laughs) So for me, this is about how do we really go beyond our, our familiar, comfortable, narrow set of tools and styles, language, and other kinds of tools that we use to address these, these issues of difference, to go to all the other tools that we have in our treasure chest that we just don't use. We have to use our treasures, right. whether it's song or meditation or humor or games or anything else that we can really, we can really use to expand the repertoire because we need to expand our, if there's one thing I'm clear about, we need to expand our repertoire because yeah. what got us into this mess is not going to get us out. So that for me was a very powerful moment of really unexpected pushing beyond the the normal first or second or third thoughts I would normally have about addressing a moment of of conflict. And it was great. And the feedback was, wow, we, we were able to really not just kind of settle back down, but we felt so connected to each other because we were singing together. I love that. Um, that also gets at the limits of words, right? Like the importance of the space we put between the words um, in another, in a whole right. other way. Um, yeah. There's also that line of Professor Wiesel that you have at the beginning of one of the chapters in the book, which may be the witness chapter. How can you sing? How can you not? Mm. I mean, what a, what a, what a wonderful pair, paired question for this century <laughs> how can you sing yeah. how can you not mm, thank you for reminding me of that that that's at the beginning of the chapter on on song beyond words oh okay um, which there you was, go. Was, yeah yeah which was 
I, I hadn't made the connection now, but this is that was that was really what came to me in that moment was that mm-hmm. that whole that whole process of Elie Wiesel, who who loved music, you know, and who had a childhood relationship with music, and after the war also was a choral conductor. Believe it or not, I had the experience of singing in a choir that he was conducting in 1992, um, hmm. which was a very powerful and strange experience because it was a totally different context from my most of my interactions with him. But there's a lot more to say about his musical legacy. Um, but, you know, the power of moving beyond the limitations of words to either to music or to the white space yeah, the white space on the page. You know, it really is such a powerful uh, image, and and we, I, th- I think that's the shift. And one of the ways of being creatively maladjusted is to begin to foreground the white space on the page, yeah. almost to see th- things in negative space and see what what are those shapes between the words, between the letters, tell us, and what do we want to create in that space? Right. The and. It's also about the limitations of what we already know and what we what is possible that we that's not written that's not written yet that's <laughs> not prescribed for us yet. <laughs> right, right. There, there's there's an, another great Hasidic tale uh, about a man who forgets everything, and so he goes to his rabbi, and the rabbi says, "Well, it's re- it's very easy. Just get post-it notes." Or whatever the equivalent was 200 years ago in Eastern <laughs> right. Europe, and write every write everything down. Just label everything. So he labels everything, and he labels his his bed and his you know his nightstand and his clothing and his shoes. And the next morning, for the first time in months, he's able to get dressed and brush his teeth and make breakfast, and everything's going really smoothly until he's about to leave the house and he catches a glimpse of his own face in the mirror, and he says, "But who am I?" Hmm. So we are we are really good at labeling things. We are really good at labeling one another. We've been taught to do that. Um, it's a sort of hyper logos um, way of being. And mm-hmm. the white space on the page, or or the melody beyond the words, is to mix metaphors. Is really, I think that's really where we need to go if we're going to find other ways of living and healing, healing our trauma, finding new ways of of living with the earth in peace. Mm-hmm. with some some degree of sustainability and learning how to live together with r- pretty significant differences of opinion and fundamental differences of interpretation yeah. of our world. Uh, and I think we can do that. But I think we have, this is both very hopeful and frustrating. We have tremendous tools from many wisdom traditions and from radical poets and creators and you know people on the fringes and outsider art you know, and and there's so much there for us if we if we turn to it, if we use it, if we allow it to inform our responses to the next moments. Um, are there other? I just want to ask you before we before we wind down. Are there other? Is there other language? Um, are there other particular teachings that feel that have really come to you that you're really walking with right now from deep inside the tradition? There are many, so we have to be careful. Yeah. It's a, it's such a uh, tempting question, but um, I'll share a couple of things w- quickly. One is, and tell me if you want me to, you know, sort of double click on anything. I can go into it more. But one thing is, um, 
back to the conversation about theology, um, I think a lot about going back to my childhood experience of being in in a situation that emphasized learning and tradition, but also being really into creativity and wild, free creativity. So I think a lot about the relationship between religion and art, religion and the arts. And there's a great teaching in my tradition that says God is a painter <laughs> and 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 God is a painter and it's a it's a word play on a Hebrew word. There is no the literal the original translation is there is no rock like our God. But the rabbis creatively play with that and say there's no painter. The words are very similar in Hebrew. There's no <laughs> okay. painter like our God. Yeah. God is like the greatest painter. Right. <laughs> and and for me it's really that God is a painter who then gave us the paintbrush and said, go make something beautiful. And, and I think about that. I think about our job really is to surprise God. Hmm. And everything we're talking about of, you know, the creative maladjustment and the kind of um, white space and the radically different ways of, of engaging with some of these questions that I, I think I, I passionately feel we need to do mm-hmm. and we need to make room for is very much about embracing creativity as a central religious value. Right. Which, which is not how I grew up. Right. But I think it's, I think it's really how I've come to experience. Um, that was really what, what drew me to Hasidic, uh, early Hasidic teaching in the first place was that you find radical creativity there, but it stayed within the tradition somehow really holding the tension between those two things. I think that's one thing I think about. And and the other is a story that captures the the power of and the questions about moral moral activation, which is my work right now is very much about this question of the mechanics of moral transformation and you know how to do that in a real way, in a concrete way. And so do we have time for me, for me yeah, to tell you yeah, the story? Yeah, please do. Yeah. So my son was uh, was on a trip, a uh, semester-long program in Israel, and then they traveled to Poland. And they traveled to Poland for, I think, about 10 days. And on this program, he made a good friend, a new friend named Mason. And when they got to Poland, they, they were touring some of the centers of Jewish life before the war, and they were also going to the camps. And on the third or fourth day of the time in Poland, Mason disappeared for the day with one of the counselors on the program. And he wouldn't tell anyone where he was going, and he came back, and he wouldn't tell anyone where he had been. And then he told my son because they were friends or, or because my son nudged him a lot to tell him. And this is what he told my son. He said, my grandparents were survivors. They were married three weeks before the deportation to Auschwitz. Mm. And in Auschwitz, they were separated, obviously. And he was on the men's side and she was on the women's side. But he would go every evening to the fence, separating the men's and the women's sides of the camps to bring her a crust of bread or an extra potato if he could, or even just to see her. And whenever they could get away, they would meet there in the evenings. And this went on for some weeks until, until my grandmother, he said, was transferred to a rabbit farm on the outskirts of Auschwitz. There was apparently a rabbit farm. The Nazis were doing experiments on rabbits that had to do with mm. uh, finding a cure for typhus. And the rabbit farm was run by a Polish man who noticed pretty early on that the rabbits were getting better quality food and attention and care than the Jewish Mm. slave laborers. Mm. 
So he started to sneak in food for the Jewish slave laborers and the inmates. And he was caught by the Nazis. He was beaten badly, but he kept doing that. He kept sneaking in food for them. And then Mason told my son, my grandmother cut her arm on a, a piece of barbed wire and the cut became infected. And it wasn't a serious infection if you had antibiotics. But of course, if you were a Jew in that place in that time, there was no way you were going to get antibiotics. So what did this Polish man who was running the rabbit farm do? He cut his own arm open and he placed his wound on her wound so that he would get the infection that she had and he, he became infected. Hmm. And hmm. he went to the Nazis and he said, I'm one of your best managers. This rabbit farm is very productive. If, if I die, you're going to lose a lot of productivity. I need medicine. They gave him medicine and he shared it with her and he saved her life. So Mason said to my son, he said, where was I when I, when I left the other day and I disappeared? I went to see that Polish man. He's still alive, <laughs> living on the outskirts of Warsaw. And I went to say, thank you for my life. Mm. Mm. Thank you for my life. So my son told me this story this year. He heard this, this last part happened very, very recently. And, and it raises a lot of questions about you know, what does it take to be the kind of person who will share someone else's wound yeah. in spite of all the pressure to see them as, a, as less valuable than a rabbit? You know, what does it take to, to push against all that pressure and, and do the right thing with courage and moral clarity and to see another person as a person when, when everything around you is telling you not to? And that question is really, for me, that's the motivating question right now because I think that's not, not in those extreme situations, alone, but in everyday life, we need to cultivate that kind of sensitivity and compassion and courage, and then put our courage in the service of our compassion. I think about how can we, how can we turn to the treasures of all of our human traditions, literatures, practices to become better at that work? Because that to me is the most important thing. That's the root cause of all the other challenges mm. and all the questions we're facing. You know, I, I, I think it's that's a it's an incredible story and I I I noted down, you know, you, you talked about Elie Wiesel, I believe, quoting Hegel saying the the real tragedies are not between right and wrong, but between two rights. Yeah. But there's also this tragedy of our time of many different wrong many people many people who have been wronged in different ways, right? That 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 those mm -hmm. different kinds of pain. Um and that's such a powerful, um, that's such a powerful, powerful uh, image. And it, it's a story and it's a teaching, isn't it? It's a teaching. Yeah, the mm -hmm. teaching my son gave me. Mm -hmm. You know, someplace I saw you writing about the principle of blessing in Jewish thought and life. And I wonder if that would be mm. a good place to close. That's another one of those huh. words that just... It has a it, it 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 imparts a sense of dignity and relief to think about blessing being in the world. So talk about that a little bit yeah. for our time, and how you understand that and what that means to live it. Well, that's the fundamental principle, for me at least, of all of Jewish tradition. Is three words: be a blessing, <laughs> be a blessing, and I, I think on some level, a blessing is something we speak 
It's something we speak to someone else. We give a blessing to someone else. Or it's a blessing we say in reference to God. There's a vertical or a horizontal expression of blessing, but it's spoken in both cases. And there's a way that a human life is a blessing. And if a life is lived well, then the articulation of a human life is a blessing. And and in response to that human life, we all say, amen, amen. There's a kind of witnessing to, to one another's blessings, the blessings that we bring. But what's so fascinating is that, you know, the Hebrew language is, is very uh, profound. And, and the word for blessing is related for the word, the same letters. It's etymologically deeply connected to the word for the knees, the knees and the way that you knees? bend your knees. Oh, your knees. The knees. Okay. Your knees. Yeah. 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 Um, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. And, <laughs> and the way that, the, the way that knees are what you, what you need to bend when you carry something heavy. And there's a way that a blessing is heavy to carry. If someone blesses you, which means, you know, they don't just acknowledge you with a certificate or something. They really see you. They really see you and they, they give their seeing of you to you. There's a certain sense of responsibility that comes with that. You know, to be witnessed is a responsibility too, as much as to mm-hmm. bear witness. Mm-hmm. Because now I have to live for them in some way or I have to live up to their expectations maybe in a, in a problematic way or at least I carry them now. I carry this blessing. But, you know, a blessing really is something that we carry and it's heavy, but it lifts us up. Mm. And I think about this a lot because we're being asked to carry a lot right now. Yeah, We're being asked to carry our own lives that's heavy enough you know, with everything that we're all going through as individuals, our families, our communities, the world, the suffering of the world and people around the world. We're, we're asked to carry all of that. It's hard. It's daunting. But a blessing is something that is heavy. And at the same time, it lifts us up. It's liberating hmm. to live for something bigger than myself. It frees me of my own smallness, my self-consciousness, my anxieties. Compassion is the greatest the greatest medicine for anxiety, hmm. the greatest medicine for, for small-mindedness. Hmm. And, and, and I'm saying this from experience, you know, as someone who, who has experienced anxiety in public speaking, there's a moment when I look out, now it's all on Zoom, but even more in person, it's still true on Zoom. I look out at faces and I see, I see the faces of people. I see, I don't know what they're carrying, but I see that they're carrying things. Yeah. And my own, my own stuff just melts away. And, and so there's a way that, that we can be a blessing to each other and bear witness to one another and tell one another stories and really get in there with, with one another with a lot of openness. Um, and that will lift us up. Mm. That's what a blessing really is. Oh, that's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much. Thank you so mm. much, Ariel. Thank you. Thank you, Krista. It's such a pleasure. Such a pleasure to talk to you and to listen to you. And, and you're reminding me of a lot of things that I've um, sort of forgotten or put in the back burner as things <laughs> okay. have developed. Everything is so hazy from yeah. this last period of time that I, I really don't remember what happened six months ago. So you're you're kind of restoring a bunch of things to me. And I well, really appreciate that. I'm happy to be able to do that for you. I, I feel the same way. I've, I feel like my... I was, I was even thinking about it a lot today, just... My brain isn't working, right? Like, I feel so untethered from 
I think it's something about spatial, how spatial experience and and also human proximity is connected to memory, right? Like that's all of the kind. And I mean, I've been reading about it because I've been feeling like I'm just floating free and... um, so I'm very happy to be able to do that for you, and I, maybe somebody will come along and do that for me. Um, and and of course, I love your cousin Rachel. You know, she's just one of my dearest people now. That was the last place I saw you. Yeah, she's wonderful. She's wonderful. Yeah. I don't see her or enough. Our our families, we left we left things with um, with a desire to go back. And dig into our family history because there's some there's some mysteries that we haven't quite figured out, having to do with the the um, the flu epidemic in 19 whatever oh, the year wow. was 18, which really shaped my family in, in a very profound way. So I'm well, I'm waiting for that conversation with Rachel. I'm gonna text her as soon as we get off and tell her that we spoke. Um, yeah, thank you Please so much. And I also had such a I I loved being with the Covenant Foundation that day. Um, that was such a beautiful thing for me, and that that when we when we first met um, in New York, yeah. and it seems also so science fictiony that we could be in that big room full of so many people. Um, right. But hopefully, there <laughs> right, will be experiences right. like that again. <laughs> Amen. Um, so blessings, Amen. That was blessings a day. to you. Yeah, Krista, thank you. Blessings thank to you, you always, okay. and and um, yeah. thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye.